welcome to Talking with Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Meadle, joined as always by Chris Bougay. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm pretty good. I got some good news, Rachel. Tell me more. So I was recently accepted to participate in a presentation for AEC in the cloud. And it's not just me. I have a, a couple of co-presenters they're going to be presenting with. Um, so I thought I'd tell you all about it. Tell me. I want to know everything. So the name of the session is called Voice and Choice, Learning Made Through Interactive Choose-Your-Own-Adventure Games for AAC in the Cloud, right? I mean, that's the, the for AAC in the Cloud is not part of the name. It's just, you know, learning made fun through interactive choose-your-own-adventure games. Um, but the idea is that this is Sean Pearson, who we've, of course, had on the podcast before and is um, uh, known for his uh, his his working with games and AAC and building those together. In fact, um, we've if you go back in the archives, you can listen to him talk about a little bit of this, uh, um, this idea of role-playing. And then a newcomer, so uh, someone named Katie Robertson, who I work with in my neck of the woods. She's one of the, um, the, uh, the specialized instructional facilitators for assistive technology with a speech background that I work with, also huge into gaming. And we just thought, you know, we all have this kind of passion for these role-playing games, and we recognize uh, how fun that experience is for um for any students that play, but particularly students that use AAC and all the generative language that comes out of it and all the um, the awesome ways that you can spur communication using these sorts of games. But we also recognize that the the, the Venn diagram of, of people who play these sorts of role-playing games and the people who do educational therapy slash instructional uh, design for students, that Venn diagram, the, the overlap there is probably pretty, pretty slim. And we thought, what can we do to make that 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 little sliver of, of cross-section grow and have even more people understand how to do this, well, AAC in the cloud seemed like the perfect fit. You know, a free conference that you can attend, that you can go, you can watch the video afterwards, even if you can't attend live. It is on um, June 24th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and it's only an hour-long session. And we, we plan to, this is the kind of fun part about it, is that uh, the first few minutes of the session, we are going to walk people through how to build a character like what character design looks like in an you can imagine you know uh, do you want them to be big or little or tall or um what color clothes do you want them to wear what size clothes i mean there's so much description that goes into creating this character so we're going to create a character together and then we're going to thrust this character into a story where they then make choices and we're going to ask the participants who are there in the session with us to like help us you know, okay, this situation happens. What are you going to do? You know, and and use your core language to tell us, you know, to walk through what you would do in these scenarios. And then we're going to have little segments where we, um, at least this is the plan anyway, to have um, little like stop for a second and dialogue about what just happened in the in the game that we're playing. Um, but then, you know, then roll back into the game, you know, so bounce back and forth. Um, and so that's the that's the plan. You know, it, it, I think it's going to be like, you know, super innovative and super fun. This sounds awesome, Chris. I'm super jealous that I'm not participating in the presenting, but I will be participating in the audience. So I'm really excited. I also was thinking how fun would it be and helpful would it be for participants to actually pull up an AAC system? So maybe your school district uses a lot of lamp boards for life. Maybe they use Prolo Quota Go. 
pull that system up during the presentation and start like using that system to model the same way you would when you were with a student. I feel like we need so much practice doing those types of activities. Um, the, the more you practice, the better you get at it. Um, so I'm just envisioning like everybody, you know, perhaps using some type of AAC system during the activity as a way to really practice. Rachel, did you? Were, were you were you spying on us when we were having our training set when we were having our planning sessions we were talking about this because that's exactly what we were talking about is that um, this would be a perfect opportunity to to practice the AAC and get more familiar with it and also use it like if you're not sure because maybe maybe people coming to AAC in the cloud um, might be they're all over the map there with uh, how much knowledge they have when it comes to AAC um, so this might be the first time that you're or one of the the, the first times you're using AAC, this gets you that kind of visual to help you think about, hmm, what could I say? Well, let me look at these my, my AAC. So yeah, that's exactly what we talked about. Awesome. That uh, obviously, Chris, we're always like in each other's brains. And this is just one other example of how like I thought of something you're like, I already thought about that, Rachel. <laughs> so I love hearing that. Um, it also spurs this idea that I wanted to talk about Chris, we always talk, you know, before the episode, like, hey, like, what do you have this week? Like, what are we going to talk about? And I was like, you know, Chris, I always have these ideas for the podcast and I never write them down. And it literally just came to me as you were talking. So I'm really excited to share what my idea was from last week. I was working with a family and it ties into what you're saying. Um, I think that oftentimes what happens is we teach about core words. We teach about the power of core, but we don't actually coach communication partners through the practice of thinking through core language, right? And I think that just like a lot of our students that think very concretely with lots of fringe and nouns, I think that as adults and educators, we think through fringe and nouns a lot of times. And so how do we get our brains thinking through core, thinking through abstract language concepts? Um, and so one of the activities that I do with my coaching clients, um, I do a lot of parent coaching now in my practice, which I love because we know that's the best way for kids to make progress. Um, so anyway, one of the things that I do is I have parents track down spontaneous language. I'm a really big fan of knowing what kids are saying on their own as a way to then build off of that one level up. So if a child's saying cookie, it's like, okay, and I, and I you know, of course teach about core and all these things, but then I practice with my clients like, okay, like what's, what, how do you, I always call it leveling up. How do you level up here? Like he said, cookie, what do you, what do you model, right? Like what's one level up from that? Um, and so that practice is huge for parents, for educators, for other SLPs, just getting them to start thinking one step ahead because we do need to be one step ahead for language, um, you know, and communication development with our kids. Um, but what I wanted to share, you know, of course that's an important strategy to share, but what I wanted to share was this family that I work with they are so tech savvy, Chris, which is not always the case when I start working with families. Some people are like, I have no idea about tech. I'm not strong with tech. Uh, this family is stronger than tech, stronger with tech than I am. And what they've done, which I think is so genius, they have a, sh uh, a shared spreadsheet with me and the other SLPs on the, the case. Um, this student has a proxy of speech, um, but they have a, we have a shared spreadsheet of spontaneous language and this family updates it. And the way they update it is through their Google home. So like I'll be in the middle of a session and they'll say, Hey, Google home or Hey Google, you know, like add. And this, this family adds in real time throughout their day, a easy way to add to the spreadsheet when they hear some type of spontaneous and novel language. Um, and it's so helpful. One, I mean, it's super efficient 
efficient, right? I like love the efficiency. The efficiency hacker in me is like, oh my gosh, how smart is this? It's so efficient and fast and you know, it's so nice that it shared with me because every session I pull it up and we look through it together and we can kind of go through and talk about, okay, here's the language we heard. What's what, how do we level this up? How do we go one step above this? What core words could we start integrating? Um, and so I just thought that was so cool. And I was like, oh my gosh, like to this one, um, it's the, the dad who's super tech savvy. I was like, I cannot believe that you just taught me something that I didn't think of related to tech and I'm definitely gonna share it on the podcast. So um, I thought it was a really innovative way uh, and efficient way to track spontaneous language. That is a super cool hack. I mean, that is really awesome because that is kind of a classic strategy, right? We'd say write the language down so you can measure uh, the growth. And then also, like you said, level up, you know, expand um, on that. And it's always a barrier because you have to stop, run to the fridge and write it down because that's where the list is or, you know, um, I don't know, whatever, wherever you have to go find it. But when you can just kind of say it out to the air and the air then responds and documents it, brilliant, brilliant. Way to go, dad. I know, I know. I was like, this is so great. I was like smiling ear to ear that he had taught me something. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to like share this with other families and share it on the podcast because I think it's such a great tool. And I think it really prioritizes what we're really thinking about when we're thinking about the students that we work with. You know, I. I, I don't want to say I don't care, but I care a lot less what they're saying with prompts and models and all of this input, right? You know, that stuff's important. The scaffolded learning is important for language development. But I really want to know what's that, how's that generalizing to spontaneous language? Like, what are they saying completely on their own? Because that's how we know what we're, do is, what we're doing is working. Um, and so I love tracking spontaneous language. Um, I love having it done in the classrooms. I love having it done at home with parents. Um, and so I think it's a really good thing to track because that's how we know the things we're doing are actually moving the needle for language development. And if you put it in a Google Sheet, you can make all sorts of like pretty graphs out of it and charts. Oh, cool. So cool. <laughs> totally. Love, love all those, those fun hacks. I, I do have some uh, stress around spreadsheets in general, Chris. My team knows this about me. Like whenever there's a spreadsheet involved, I realize it's the most practical way to organize information, but I get like super stressed out. And so luckily I have a team that can handle spreadsheets for me and I'll just like tag people like, Hey, can you do this? Can you set this formula? Can you do this? <laughs> but it's like a, a running joke in my company that like Rachel like doesn't, Rachel gets triggered by spreadsheets. <laughs> Well, so let me tell you about the interview that's coming up here today, Rachel. So um, this one is Heidi Hasek-Joyce. And what Heidi and I have have in common is that um, we both were going to present, uh, first we were going to do it separately, and then we realized that we were sort of submitting the same sort of um, session at, for um, a conference at the uh, Semantic Compactions Conference pre-pandemic. And they said, hey, you guys are both going to do something on coaching um again many moons ago and uh they they said why don't you get together and maybe you'd want to do it together and so we did we got together we had a conversation and then bam pandemic hit and it got canceled it didn't even go virtual and the whole thing sort of fell apart and then um so so we've been wanting to work together and do something and have a conversation about coaching uh so I said, how about a podcast episode? Because um, she has been to a couple of our sessions where we have, you and I have done um, uh, some of our talks on coaching. And uh, she's been an active participant in the chat there when, when, uh, when you know, when we've been doing those sessions. And so it's like, well, let's compare some notes here. What's happening in your neck of the woods. And so this is my interview with Heidi Hasek-Joyce. Mm -hmm. 
Hey there! If you love listening to this podcast, we would be so, so grateful for your support to keep it going. By becoming a Patreon member, you can not only help us cover the cost of this podcast, but you can get some really great bonus content as well. We post video tutorials, behind-the-scenes recordings, and bonus segments from our interviews. We would love for you to join us by going to patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. That's patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here today with Heidi. Heidi, can you say your last name for me so I don't mess it up? Sure. It's Hosick. Hosick. Oh, Easy. That's not, that's not how I would have said it. Hi- Heidi Hosick. That's it. Now, so Heidi, so welcome to the podcast. And let's start off with telling people a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm a speech path and audiologist. Do very little audiology. Um, I would say I build relationships. Um, I have a home health agency and an outpatient clinic. And um, through both entities, we really work at building relationships with families, direct care staff, um, patients, so that we can enhance their communication skills. (laughs) Heidi, I just love how you put that. It wasn't, we work to enhance communication skills by building relationships. It's we build relationships to enhance communication skills. Is that purposeful? Absolutely. It's very purposeful. If we don't have a relationship, all we're doing is drilling compliance. There's no carryover with compliance. So let's talk about how you and I got to know each other just a little bit. In fact, we've we've never met in person, but um, let me make sure I remember the story correctly. So pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, I was going to do a session up in Pittsburgh um, with uh, Semantic Compactions. And they said, well, Chris, you want to do something on coaching? And we actually know this other person, Heidi, who's going to do something on coaching, despite the fact that you two have never met or even maybe even heard of each other. How about you guys work together and do a session together? Does that sound about right? That's Yeah, that's right. I had seen you at ATIA in the robot coding um, and absolutely loved your approach and actually came back and uh, bought a robot for one of my older kiddos that I really was trouble having trouble connecting with um, and going back to that relationship, knowing that that is what was going to drive everything that he was going to do has a device and, and um, that was going to be my in. And so you caught my attention and um, I've done some work with the MinSpeak community and that's where we kind of, we kind of hooked up. So. All right. So tell me more about the robots real quick. Let's just, um, did it work? I mean, did it help to build the relationship? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> a matter of fact, with when COVID started and I still haven't seen him, um, his parents have decided to stay telehealth. I took the robot to his home so he could have it during the pandemic and um, probably forever at this point, but um, through, and he's a super, super success story with the pandemic because not only did he have the robot and so he really had that buy-in with me and his mom, his family um, were willing to try different things. And we discovered because he likes to eat, we could get him in the kitchen and do a whole lot with cooking and recipes, which then led to literacy. I happen to have a bunch of um, pediatric kid cookbooks from my own children at my house and again, drop them off there and he loved them. And then his mom started seeing everything we could do on his device. Uh, he has an accent 1000, everything we could do with literacy and 
the pandemic has exploded his use because we were able to make it so functional. But it all all went back to the robot and getting some great buy-in because I did what he was interested in. God, I just love how all that ties together. You know, just before coming on to this to this recording, I was uh, rereading chapter seven in Karen Erickson, David Hope Copenhaver's book, and it's all about uh, reading and reading comprehension. And one of the one of the things they mention in that book is you're reading for a purpose like and and what you just described there just completely resonated with me because i was literally just reading it and you were like you know he's now reading for a purpose it's just to make meals so you're reading the the recipe and why are you reading and why is that important to know what the words mean and how it puts together and how that all fits together is because i'm gonna make meals either for myself or for my family how awesome yeah and it's just it's it's fascinating to me too the explosion that has come from something that we were able to hook into so the the cookbooks was the start and we realized he loved um some of the math that was involved with it so then we just started to expand with other books that had a lot of math types of um storylines and so it was just it's been such a beautiful natural progression and it's so nice not to just say oh he likes robots so i'm going to get books about robots because <clears throat> i did that at first with telehealth um and yeah he was interested in them but he wanted the, to work with the robot and do coding and you know that's what he wanted and i kept trying to like try to get this literacy going and i wasn't successful and then when all of a sudden whatever made us think of that cookbook that day changed everything so, um, yeah, I, I think it's so exciting to be able to take that step back. And I have the luxury of doing that in a private practice where I can take that step back and think, this isn't working. What, what else, you know, I have that time available and I've worked in school settings where the caseload was, you know, I worked 20 hours a week and I had 55 kids. There was no way I had time to take that step back, but being able to take that step to reflect and I think what I've learned now is to build that relationship. If we don't take that time, all we're doing is um, marking something. Off, we're checking a box off mm -hmm. of that IEP or off of that, you know, plan of care for insurance. We're not making the difference that we can make. Mm -hmm. And we have amazing skills as speech language pathologists, but we get so hung up. Um, and I don't think we're the best at advocating for ourselves either. Mm-hmm. I was all of that resonates with me. I mean, I know I felt that um, when I was doing direct services as a speech language pathologist in the schools, uh, that it's like, am I? I'm just filling minutes here. Am I? Is is the time I'm actually spending effective? And I was reflecting on my own practice, not even the the practice for each individual student and what's working for them, because there's so many in so little time. And I feel like that is something a, a kind of a rut we get into. And hopefully maybe this pandemic is an opportunity to really reflect about what, how, how is that whole system designed and how can we maybe design it better? Right. You know, the other thing I keep thinking about, and I don't use SLPAs, um, but I just keep thinking there's the opportunity. I just, you know, I'm excited to learn how people are using an SLPA to be able to give themselves that time to, to set up. Um, a different type of program or to really look at what can we change because we're still going to have those requirements until we have some massive systems shift. I mean, between education and insurance, that's going to take a massive system change and that's not going to happen in my lifetime. But I just keep thinking these SLPAs 
are our answer if we can just figure out how to do that dance of, um, you know, having the, the relationship where we can make the changes for the clients and still fulfill those needs. Yeah. And I, I guess right along with that parallel to that might be paraprofessionals that might Absolutely. work so many more minutes, but we're not necessarily focused our intervention on teaching them how to spend, uh, how, how to do uh, robust intervention. Well, Heidi, there's something else that you mentioned that I think is important subtext that I think we need to bring forth to the, for the listeners. And that is you're, you're talking about reflection on on what you can do differently when something's not working. And I think something that happens um, is there's sometimes a digging in the heels that, well, I've, it's not that I possibly have done something wrong or that my intervention is wrong. It's there's something broken with the student or the person. Um, and that, I did, that's, that is not how you have approached it at all. And what your discussion it is always about, okay, the thing is not working. The thing that I'm doing is not working. What can I do differently? what's a different thing I might try until eventually I find something that works like recipes. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think that's what's so fascinating about coaching. And I think in our field, in, in speech language pathology in general, we don't have um, a really good understanding of coaching and we don't have great definitions. So, you know, I'm in a lot of different um arenas where I'm either doing um, advocacy or whether I'm doing some monitoring of plans of care and, and reviewing documentation for somebody or whether I'm doing some mentoring in every, I mean, I can talk to 10 people in a day and have 10 different definitions of coaching. Mm -hmm. um, and I think until as a profession, we can start realizing coaching is, and we need to look outside of our profession to get there. Um, because clearly that's not something that anybody is coming out of grad school with. And certainly 30 years ago, it was not something we even thought about. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to um, realize that giving homework or telling somebody what to do, that's not coaching. Mm -hmm. and, and it's hard, you know, the way we all learn is based on our experiences. So, you know, when I uh, swam on a swim team and the coach told me to change this uh, way that I was moving my arms and I did it. Yeah, he was coaching me. I did what he told me and that was coaching. So in my mind, I tell somebody it's coaching. So I, I feel like the change that we have to make is that reflection. Mm -hmm. So there's coaching. Like we all think of for sports. I think that's pretty much the generic coaching definition. And there's reflective coaching where somebody is making a change to something they're doing at the level they're capable of. Mm -hmm. And I so, think that's where paraprofessionals come in. Wait, tell me more. What do you mean paraprofessionals? Well, because, you know, when I was in the schools specifically, or if I, and I go into group homes quite a bit, I'm not working with the teachers. I mean, I may, I mean, of course I'm cordial to them, but they don't have the time that's needed and they're not the one-on-one -on -one hands on. Mm -hmm. So if I'm working with the paraprofessionals or the direct support staff, um, I am able to see what level they're at. And, and I think that's another thing that's really hard for us. As important as it is to evaluate our patient, you know, in quotes, is to know who we're working with. We have to, in essence, we have to know what, what they're capable of. What is their bandwidth at that point in time? Um, you know, you may have a paraprofessional that's super tech savvy, but her bandwidth in that classroom because of the demands on her, she can't get to it. Mm -hmm. 
And I think we have to know that we have to assess that and we have to be very sensitive to it. So let's talk about that for a second. So how do you assess that? And what is, what's the sort of protocol you follow when you're invited into a classroom and you're going to say, okay, I know that I need to do, uh, I need to help them move from point A to point Z. <laughs> I don't know if it's <laughs> right. a, uh, not just A to B, because there's probably many, many steps in there. Um, what's your first approach when you walk into a classroom like that? So, of course, my simple answer is I have to build a relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we have that expert model mentality, it's not going to happen. I am not the expert. That, that paraprofessional in that classroom is going to be the expert on what goes on in that classroom and when something is manageable and when it isn't. And so I really try to sit back and observe what's going on. Um, you know, I really like some of the, the models that are out there that give a lot of that positive reinforcement when you see something good. But I also do a lot of wondering because it's one point in time. So if I see a pair professional with um, a student using a device and perhaps she's gone over and said, oh, come on, you know where you know where that word is and, you know, does some hand over hand and and helps the student say whatever she thought he was going to say. I may I may say something like, wow, you really know what he's thinking. That's great. You are on you are right there on track with him. I wonder if you would have given him some time. Would he have been able to come up with it on his own? I don't know. Maybe he would have, but because I don't know, I'm not in that classroom every day. She may know, and maybe she would just stop and reflect for just a second. And then the next time she might think, no, maybe I'll wait, wait two minutes. Maybe I'll wait two seconds before I do some of that hand over hand or, you know, additional prompting that maybe he didn't need. I love that very practical strategy of, 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 of being a coach um, or someone who's helping in a classroom in some way. You're asked to provide some sort of feedback. It's very simple strategy of I wonder. I wonder if, uh, I think a, a parallel strategy to that is, what do you think would happen if, you know? Um, and I, both of those force the person that you're talking to to reflect on their own actions um, as opposed to reflect on what, the student did. Do you know what I mean? Right. Right. So in being able to think about, um, give them food for thought for future interactions. That's really what I'm, what I am thinking about in those moments, because it's not that I want them to go back and try it again. Because again, if you're setting up that like, okay, well let's, let's role play this and have Johnny and you've lost the moment. You know, I'm all about novel interactions, novel expressions. That's that is what drives me. Um, and I and I get that there's times when we have students that have to be able to um, use specific vocabulary or be able to have a specific type of polite interaction um, or from a pragmatic standpoint, you're working on something. And I get that. But I am really looking at those novel interactions. I want to know what that student's thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Heidi, let me ask you, when you talk about relationships and building relationships, do you find that in your practice, you come back to those paraprofessionals or do you, or whoever you're working with and have like, we're going to meet with them. Here's what the program looks like. We're going to meet for six sessions, eight sessions. We're going to, or is it like, 
I come in and it's a, a one hit and I'm going to try and build a quick relationship there and I'll see you in six months. What does the, the system around it look like? Yeah, I think that that's probably part of where we get stuck. I had um, a situation actually with a student with a device and I was seeing him privately and I happened to also work for the school district, but he wasn't on my caseload in the school district. And so I had had some really good success with the family and he had um, an ABA therapist that a tech that came to the house. And um, so the school's like, you know, will you go into that classroom and really help the teacher? And I went in and I thought I was doing a great job and I, you know, sat back and I listened and I wondered and um, we talked a little bit about some things, some visual supports that could help that I was willing to make and bring into the classroom. And so that was all well received. And then I um, observed something that really concerned me and I brought it up and it was definitely um, just kind of sloughed off. And I made a comment to a supervisor and it ended up really going south fast. And the comment was made to the teacher. She didn't know I could hear. Um, This was over a few uh, visits. This is why consultants are a disaster in the classroom. Mm. They come in, they see something, they, they make a decision. They have that mental image they say what needs to be done and then they're gone and we're stuck with a mess. Mm-hmm. And that has really stuck with me thinking about, I mean, certainly nobody that goes in has that intent to go in and make a mess of things. I don't, I mean, it's a tough classroom. It was, you know, seven kids with autism with five different devices. Like it wasn't a place that I ever wanted to stir up a hornet's nest, but I did. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we look at that consultation model, it's a disaster. Because there wasn't a good relationship. Yes, we were cordial to each other. Sure. But there wasn't, there was no trust, mm-hmm. you know? And if somebody, if if you take the time to build that relationship and you have trust, then you can start moving that needle. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a real challenge to be able to have, I, I think that's why the consultation model doesn't work, mm-hmm. but it's a real challenge to change that as a system design. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, so everything you just said completely parallels my own experience working, you know, exclusively in public schools. Um, it, it, that I had the same thing. Like I would come in as the consultant, this expert, and uh, I, I did. I feel like I had a great relationship with the teachers. You know, um, th- there was some trust. They would see me. I think some of the ways you build the trust is to get on the floor, do it with the student. They see, you know, talk about your prior experiences. Um, see that you're willing to kind of be in the trenches and it still didn't work. Like it wasn't, it wasn't just that because it's still, when I tried to move the needle, it wasn't structured enough. Meaning it was like, well, Chris, yeah, I I know when he comes, he does a good job and I have a good experience. Um, and I I do feel like he's helpful. Like he gives some helpful suggestions. Um, but then he comes back in three months, you know, four months, because there's so many needs and there's so many other classrooms that I was doing that in that it felt like the move was all of that, that relationship building, plus a structured approach where I'm just, maybe I can't be in all the classrooms all the time. I have to just pick individual people and do more focused with a set number of, of training sessions. I don't know. What do you think? Well, and I think too, you know, it's all individualized. That's what makes it hard. 
because you may have one teacher. I may have one family that I can see them. I have families I see twice a month and me and we're making amazing progress. Mm -hmm. I have other families I see three times a week. Yeah. And it is slow go. So being, and I think the, the beautiful thing about um, being kind of that, that model where you have that flexibility is you can go in and out. And I think that's really hard for speech pathologists to get, because I think we're so used to saying, you know, two times a week or eight times a, a quarter or whatever. Um, we're so driven by that where we need to have that flexibility and we need to have trust in ourselves that we know when somebody needs us so we can flow into that classroom more. I can have that parent come in more when they're having problems. And when things are going good, I don't have to feel like, oh, they're scheduled this week. What am I going to do? Those are some of the worst sessions. Oh, they're three times a week and everything's going good. What in the world am I going to coach them on today? <laughs> Right. We're doing great, you know, so that ebb and flow is just, um, it's critical. It's critical for, and, and if you think about coaching effects, you think about like, think about an Olympian. I'm sure the coaching at that level isn't the same as when your five-year-old is learning how to um, swim their first relay race, Right. You know, and so but yet we still like we're implementing this coaching model inside of our SLP box that we're still going to go in so many times a week and it, it doesn't work. Yeah. And I think I think that really reflects uh, education as a whole, meaning um, so many of us grew up in a system that is, well, we're all going to learn the same thing at the exact same time. And when you first were explaining that, um, Heidi, you were saying, meet people where they're at and everyone's at a different stage. You know, you picture like a kindergartner, some people come in to kindergarten and they're, uh, they're reading, you know, and they're reading with comprehension and others are just learning where their letters are, you know, and if you just do the same thing for everybody, then the, the kids that are um, a little bit further along, aren't being challenged and the kids that are um, need additional support, uh, they're, they're having even a harder time in learning that. So it's this kind of personalized approach to education and, and that same thing I think extends to professional learning, which makes me ask this question. Do you, um, do, when you're trying to meet people where they're at and you're kind of, you're sitting there doing that uh, observation at first, is the next thing maybe to, have invite them to think of their own goal like where do you want to go next uh document that in some way and then you can make adjustments from there what are, what are your thoughts on that absolutely i think um i all you know I, I, my joke has always been like i can meet anybody and i could come up with 10 slp appropriate goals i mean anybody because that's what we're good at you know i can always find a way to enhance language or pragmatics or whatever um but finding out what's important to the individuals that i'm working with yes the the student obviously the client the patient um, but when I'm talking about coaching, what's going to make the difference? So my first question always to a family when they come in to see me is, so what what was your your high of the week? What was your low kind of thing? Mm -hmm. So, you know, of course, the high, then that gives me something to build off of, because whatever that high is, I kind of start to think about what made that a high. So I have a little bit of insight as to what really felt good, what was important and what was successful. And then what was the low of the week? Where did we really struggle? 
So once we do that, then we can talk about like, if it's a low that I think we can impact in that session, I can talk about, oh, well, I wonder if we need to change a setting on the device. Um, you know, maybe we need to be able to give uh, more dwell time because that sounds like where you were running into problems and the device went flying across the room. So let's play with that a little bit. And so maybe we make some changes to the programming um, and, and we're practicing seeing if that's going to make a difference. So then before um, the patient leaves, we were simple. We just use cell phones and they will actually write down kind of what their goal is going to be for the next session um, because it helps them be accountable and it helps them remember. I mean, we all have, you know, our lives are so busy and we have so many people we're responsible for. So you have a paraprofessional that's like, oh yeah, that'll be great. I'll do that three times this next week with Johnny. And you come back in and they're like, oh man, it's already been a week. I can't believe I never did it. Mm -hmm. What was I supposed to do again? So I do, I have them document it somehow. And we just use phones because I don't need to have any accountability that I'm going to carry with me or uh, submit to anyone. Mm -hmm. And um, I find that that really makes a difference. Heidi, that makes so much sense to me. Um, a couple really important points there are one, you're inviting people to document it in some way. I mean, I, I won't use the phrase, write it down because you're saying text it in. Do you know what I mean? Or right. however, whatever modality works for you, you are, it, you've, you have done something kinesthetic about the goal, like you've, you've texted it in or you've handwritten it in. And then the second thing that I think is maybe important there is that you are using the analogy of um, like an, a, an, a, someone in the Olympics, right? Well, I picture somebody who has this goal of being an Olympic, I don't know, you, you were in swimming, right? So let's say an Olympic swimmer. Um, if, if you, it, you know, this, this could be completely wrong, but I imagine, you know, if you're the someone who wants to be an Olympic swimmer, then maybe your bedroom has like, posters of Olympic swimmers up and it's got affirmations about the only, uh, the only variable is time. Do you know what I mean? Or work hard every day. There's some sort of reminder in your environment that this is the goal we're after. And, and it's, uh, it helps also all the support mechanisms for that person who's, who's going to be an Olympic athlete, or that's their goal to know, oh, this is their goal. They're focused on this. How can I help them with that? And I, so I feel like that's the, kind of the same thing what you're talking about here is one, getting it out of your brain and making it um, kinesthetic and visual. And then second, having something that allows people to refer to that before the next time you're meeting. Do you know what I mean? So that they're like, right, we're, 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 we're focusing on that. Right. And I think, you know, I'm really big on visuals because a lot of my practice is individuals with autism. And so visuals just really can make a difference um, for, for the kiddos that I spend most of my time with, which is why communication devices are beautiful, because even if they are verbal or low verbal, um, we got lots of visual support there. And that's when we see that explosion. The more visuals that are available, the more explosion in language we see. So a lot of times I will, I kind of carry in my pocket things that I think I might be able to give somebody that they're going to use at home. You know, if we're working on potty training and I may have um, in my pocket, a bunch of pictures that I know I can whip out and give to them. Um, I also use a lot of videos. So when something goes well, that I maybe see the student doing, or, or I see the interaction with the parent, I am constantly videoing. And then I'll send that video with the parent to show the other parent or to show the grandparents like, oh, look what happened when I slowed down. Look how long I waited. 
I can't believe I had to wait that long, but he can do it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know he could do it. So I'm always trying to use videos, um, which also makes me think of a training that I've done um, packed. And it's it was a research study out of the UK that is really emphasizing low dose intervention, <clears throat> excuse me, with long-term results. So it was a, a seven-year longitudinal study and it really showed the impact. It was twice a month for six months. That's it. Okay. Now it was not AAC devices. It was um, working with children that had... Um, language delays. They didn't even necessarily have an ASD diagnosis, but it really went to the heart of the matter that if the family can understand where that individual, where their kiddo is developmentally and meet them there, then they can move that needle because they are with them all day, every day. Mm-hmm. And even at that low of a dose, in seven years compared to the children, it was a comparative study, compared to the children that did not get, the families that did not get the intervention, it's the changes stuck. The other kiddos, it dropped right back down, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is fascinating that we actually have a study out there that shows us low dose, work with whoever is with that individual, help, so, you know, truly, in essence, we're treating the paraprofessionals, we're treating the parents, which is really hard for me to even say, um, because that's not what we're trained to do, but that's who we're treating. Yep, I am conv- more convinced than ever. First, well, let me ask Heidi, if you could, if you have that study, if you could send me it, we will make sure we link it in the show notes so other people can, sure. can read it and consume it. But this also, I think, has bared fruit in the pandemic with the, the number of um, people who are like, well, how do I do direct intervention with a student that doesn't really engage with or attend to a, a, a video screen? Um, well, how about we coach the family? And I have yet to hear anyone talk about how that has been a like a, a negative thing. Like it's always like <laughs> the outcomes are much better, you know. And it's not surprising to me that if we do work with the people that are um, with the communicate with the, the the client the most, we see the biggest gains, you know. Exactly, and I think whenever we, um, I think one of the hardest things is is explaining it to the family. Because the family wants to come to you as the expert, as the professional to fix using that term lightly. And, you know, we we know we have some families that want their kids fixed, but there's we have families that want to see change. They're coming to you to see change. And for us to have the right terminology and the right explanation of you are the agent of change. And I'm here to support you and to teach you those skills so you can make those developmental changes. Mm-hmm. And that's where I feel like that's where we need to be at with these kids. And you're right. So many of them, so many of the kids that we work with, you know, we, we really have three things going on in my mind. We have a language delay. So we're looking at it from, you know, from our lens as um, as a language expert of what should happen. We have that that AAC, the AT part of that technology. Then we also have this part of, um, are we really looking for compliance Mm -hmm. through a behavioral approach or are we looking at how do we engage this child? And I think so many times, you know, we think that getting the device will allow this child to communicate 
and all of that engagement stuff will go away. And that's not the case. Right. You know, we still have to meet this kid where he is. And if where he is, is bouncing to four different activities, then that's fine. That's where he is. And we have to have skills to address that, which is to, which is a whole nother 28 podcast <laughs> um, about how in the world would we start to do that? Mm-hmm. How do we look at a child like that and think about it through an SLP lens? Because that's not really what we're taught. Well, I think the answer is clear. Robots. I mean, that's the. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No. <laughs> no, no. Um, but something in those veins, trying to find something that is um, exciting to the student. Um, and I, I, I have a, a, a slide that is um, a quote that I've often heard is that the 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 true power of education of teachers, which I think includes speech therapists, paraprofessionals, any person that's with a young uh, child is to uh, get, is to help them discover things they didn't know they were excited about yet. And so that means let's show them different things that might tickle their fancy, you know? And if we just keep doing like, well, I keep showing them puzzles and they're not interested in puzzles. Well, yeah, we have to show them more than just puzzles. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, our motto is you you follow the child's lead. And if it's a blanket that you're going under, you, yeah. <laughs> you do it until you're sick of it. And then guess what? You do it some more. Because if the child is still doing it, I'm still doing it. Yeah. And there are days you're like, oh, I need to expand this. And as soon as I expand a little bit, I lose the child. Then I know, like, I screwed up. I, I should not have expanded at that point in time. And so, you know, in that, and it's hard and sometimes it's really, really hard, but you know, how many different, you know, my favorite thing is a lot of times those kids are the ones that have AAC devices. And so I love the challenge of how many words can I use when we're playing peekaboo, essentially, how many different single word utterances can I generate off that device and model? And that to me, so that kind of keeps me stimulated while we are playing peekaboo for 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice little challenge. Um, It's funny as a dad, let me just take it out of there. As a dad, we used to build um, with my own kids, uh, Thomas, the tank train, these like these these tracks and we would play it like all the time. We build tracks and I, in my own brain, I created my own little challenge for myself is can I use every piece uh, and make them connect so that there isn't just some sort of dead end someplace. And it was just my own little, I never talked to my three-year-old that I was playing with about my own little challenge, but it helped me be like uh, engaged with it the entire time. And I feel like that's similar to what you're saying here is that, okay, how many different ways can I use this word? Let me make my own challenge as we're working with the student, you know? Right. Right. And so there's so many facets. And I just think um, really thinking about the coaching as the model to be able to expand these kiddos that are really slow moving for a lot of different reasons, really have a lot of challenges with engaging. Um, And so and typically those are, you know, we look back at at some of our, our OT colleagues and what things they see that are keeping this child from being able to engage. Not that they don't want to, it's not, they don't have language. It's not that they don't have a voice, their bodies physically can't. And when we can change that lens and look at people um, in that manner, 
I think, well, I think the world would be a better place. <laughs> you know, when I look at my kids get so, my personal kids get so tired of hearing me saying like, oh man, they're, you know, somebody cut someone else off in the car and I'll be like, oh, his capacities are maxed today. They're like, mom, no, he's just being mean. I'm like, no, he's not being mean. His capacities, he just, his capacities are are just exhausted and he could not make the decision that that was an inappropriate move in his car. But that's how I look at it. It's all in what capacities do we have? I love that perspective. I absolutely love it. So Heidi, let me ask you this. We talked about uh, other people's research. Do I remember correctly from our emails and correspondence that you're doing some research as well? Is that something you can talk about here on the podcast? Yes. Absolutely. So we are, I am doing research with two other um, SLPs here in Tennessee, and we're doing it through Vanderbilt. Um, They're supporting it. We're looking at, surprise, definitions of coaching. So we started developing this um, whole intensive um, research model that we would be doing coaching with, with some children and looking at intensity because how often do when you um, dispense in air quotes, a speech uh, device, you give training one or two times. And then you say to the parent, let me know if you have any problems. Mm -hmm. And then you keep treating the child. So as we started developing this um, whole protocol, we were like, wait a minute, what's the definition of coaching? So um, the initial, so the first part of the research that's going on now is looking at what do speech pathologists consider the definition to be Mm -hmm. so that we have to all be on the same page. And I think that's where we started to really realize, like, to me, coaching is always reflective. Mm -hmm. It's always reflective because that's my training and that's my DIR background. And, and that's how I see the world. Um, But I didn't realize that's not how a lot of people see it. And when we started realizing people were saying coaching was giving homework or coaching was not taking toys into an EI house and using pots and pans, we were like, oh, we need to take a step back. So that's the first. And there's a bunch of um, scenarios in it's a survey. It's a simple 10 minute survey. Uh, There's a bunch of scenarios in it that will help us be able to gauge what people consider coaching and what it isn't. And so we're hoping with getting that data, it will give us a place to start to look at why do we need to maybe change how we think about coaching. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And having an established definition that everyone, maybe that a um, a governing body or an advisory body could say, exactly. get behind and say, this is what, let's say, ASHA says coaching is. Or, or Yes. And actually, if you look at the practice portal for the evidence maps, there is very um, general information about coaching. And it's like parent implemented versus clinician directed. Mm-hmm. That's like the literature or... Um, coaching practices in early intervention in children at risk of delay, a systematic review. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the coaching was accepted, but there's lack of evidence of effectiveness. Mm-hmm. That's it. We just have, we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Well, which, well, maybe we haven't gotten there yet with um, AAC and speech, but we certainly have gotten there in other practices. And you mentioned that earlier, so we have to look outside of our own um our own profession for other places that have effectively used coaching. Was that fair? That's exactly right. And I think that's where, you know, we have to look at that mental health side that we don't receive a lot of training in. And I think as I've talked with some of my colleagues, you know, my initial master's was in audiology. So I did have a good amount of counseling training because you do have, um, 
a lot more challenges from an ideological standpoint when you're looking at, at some of the um, some of the hearing impairments or deafness diagnoses that you can provide. And, you know, I learned a lot then, but speech path don't receive mm -hmm. that information. And so I was really kind of surprised, but that, that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of how um, your interactions can really affect the outcomes of what you're shooting for. So back to your survey for a second, is that something, do you, are you, where are you in the, in the scope there? Are you looking, do you need people to take it or, you know, we've already we got do. those numbers, Chris, we we're crunching. <laughs> we are still collecting numbers and um, we're going to give it a little while longer. We're kind of getting out there. We'd like to see, to have a, the more responses, the better, um, obviously. So um, I will send you that link as well for that survey and anybody that has their C's, um, that's one of the criteria and has dispensed, um, has provided one AAC device in the last year can answer the survey. And that way we know it's um, somebody that's that's kind of been in the trenches with us and and um, is working to try to figure out a better way. You know, and, and honestly, Chris, the whole reason we started this came from abandonment. It didn't, you know, and it's interesting how you, you have the big problem to us was abandonment. And then you start like rolling back. Well, why are things abandoned? Oh, well, people don't know how to use them. Okay, well, let's look at training. Well, wait a minute. They they know they're trained and the device is working. And then you keep rolling back and you're like, wait a minute, we missed the boat. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it kind of goes to, and I, I actually keep this sitting here on my desk and it's one of my absolute favorite quotes is from JFK. And it's uh, too often we enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. And I think about that with AAC all the time. And how often do I have an opinion about what will work for somebody? And I open my mouth before I think about it. That's so, so um, powerful, Heidi. <laughs> you know. All right, let me ask you this. I like to ask to end our interviews with a kind of a thoughtful question about um, what are you curious about? What uh, someone who's been working in this capacity for a while, what's got you jazzed? What's got you curious? What are you questing after? What's, a, what's, what's something that's got you sort of percolating in your own brain? Sure. Um, well, I think a lot of it goes back to the relationships and how do we pivot our profession to look at communication, language development from a communication standpoint and that relationship. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of that comes from thinking about the field of um, ABA and teaching language. Um, and some of that comes from that mental health side and everything that we've gone through with the pandemic and what relationships and lack of physical relationships, what that has done to people. Um, and thinking about just that bigger picture of how the more people in this world that we can communicate with and that we can understand, whether that's from a comprehension standpoint or have a voice, how much more information and how much better of a place we can live in. And I think to me, that's that that's the ultimate is, you know, I feel certain there is somebody out there in this world without a voice that has the answers, but we haven't given them a voice yet. I love it. I love it. Heidi, 
Speaking of relationships, I've loved our relationship. Again, sort of like Rachel and I, you and I have never, well, I guess we met that once Once. at ATIA, but we didn't get to do that that presentation together because it got canceled due to COVID. And I'm bummed about that. So please come back uh, on the podcast when you have the survey data and your research is all all done and kind of let us know how it all turned out and what you're, feel free to um, bring your research partners back and we'll keep this relationship going. That sounds fabulous. I think it's a great way to um, keep expanding and getting ideas and figuring out what we're not thinking about yet because there's lots out there. Awesome. Well, thank you, Heidi. You have a great day. You too.